0: Hey there beer lovers, welcome to season two of the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This is the show where certain things are fixed, such as the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective.
1: What's cracking beer lovers?
0: What's up? How we doing?
1: Colin, it's been a long day, brother. I need a beer.
0: Let's get a beer. Let's do you it. You got to tell me about it first though.
1: So, I these are the our last beers from the Clown Shoes Advent. Uh the 12 days of um Christmas or 12 days of Christmas beer or whatever it was. Uh 12 beers of Christmas. That's what it was. I don't I remember. I don't remember. Um but I have the One Man Holiday. It is a Belgian style quadruple ale Um, and the can is interesting Um, I've got a leprechaun I've got a like a large very large bunny Um, I've got a flying baby like a little flying angel baby Um, I've got some bats and then I've got a a guy on a reindeer um, wearing a pink suit with a Santa hat and a pumpkin for a head, putting a topper on a tree. Um, All right. Now, listen to what they say about it, and the art's going to make more sense. Okay. Pangalowicus is the name, and holidays are my game. All of them, all the time, all at once. Look no further and have no fear. Pangalowicus is here, and he brewed up a Belgian-style quad.
0: Nice. So he's a game he's a game master. No. He plays games.
1: No. Holidays are his game.
0: Oh, got it, got it, got it.
1: That's why it's the one man holiday. God, got, got, got it, Holidays oh, and he I see. lives holidays all the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I could live
0: holidays all the time.
1: Um the tasting notes are rich, malty and full of dark f- ripe fruit sweetness with all the trademark backbone that only a Belgian yeast could provide. It is an eight, it is 8%, It so not too terribly high. It's a standard quad kind of...
0: Drink ABV. responsibly, kids.
1: Yeah, definitely drink responsibly. Um, so, yeah, this is what I got. Dope.
0: So, I have clown shoes. They call it the Royal Standard... And my artwork is very mythical, as always. Um, Some kind of Scottish woman superhero riding a lion, wearing clown shoes. (laughs) Can I see? Yeah. That's interesting. And this is what they say about it online. Uh, So, first of all, it's 8% ABV. So, once again, drink responsibly, kids. Uh, it's a wee heavy ale. That's what it says. Wee turning to its Scottish roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tribute to head brewer Dan Lipke's Scottish roots and all the badasses out there riding lions into the Scottish mist. Tasting notes are malty, creamy, and moderately sweet. We brewed this wee heavy with Scottish golden promise barley malt to add a deep fullness and a hint Herbal floral tenderness.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. That was nothing like I expected.
0: Mine tastes exactly like I expected it to taste. Um... Definitely more on the sweet side for me. Hmm. Um, don't typically like super sweet beers, um, which usually malt first beers tend to be more sweet. Yeah. Um, and Scottish beers tend to be sweeter just as a category. Yeah. a general category, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, for what it is, fantastic. Uh, it's like a 6-8 for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh- I did not expect that dark fruit note to present so forward, um, but it is. It's it's really forward. Like I get lots of like dates and things. Mm. Um, it's really interesting. Dates um, are always
0: a weird fruit note to have in in certain beers. Yeah, but it works. What's the color on that? Um, oh, it's pretty light. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, golden-ish. Yeah, date would be something I would expect in something
1: darker. Yeah, but like I'm kind of getting that here. And It's interesting with the, the Belgian yeast mm. um, and with the the kind of wheat malty background that's happening. Almost here. tastes
0: kind of like a pastry, huh?
1: No, no, not quite.
0: Not like a jam or... No, like because
1: a, it's got a, like a tartness to it too. Mm. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a quad like this. Um, I'm probably sitting at like a
0: 7-2. Mm, okay. So just like middle of the road. Mm-hmm. It's Good. Good. Mm-hmm. good, good, good. So today, we talk theological method.
1: Let's do it.
0: How do we do theology? Okay. So in engaging theology, they begin, and what they're really doing is there having a conversation about whether you're doing theology from above or theology from below? And in order to have that conversation, they ground it in two theologians. Clayton, who are the two theologians?
1: Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth.
0: And who represents which one?
1: Um, so Aquinas is the God that is above. And no, I'm sorry, it's reversed. Yep. yep. Yeah, you're right. Aquinas is the God that's more imminent, and, yep. and, and Bart is the God that is more transcendent.
0: Easy way to remember this is um, Aquinas is known less as a theologian and more as a philosopher. Mm -hmm. And who's his, like, preferred philosopher? Aristotle. Which is a very eminent view of Mm -hmm. ethics and Mm -hmm. life down here. You remember Mm -hmm. the famous School of Athens painting where Aristotle's got his hand out this way, pointing, like, to the Towards the ground. And Plato's pointing up at the forms. Mm Mm-hmm. So Aquinas is the theology from below kind of person, which is a very like natural theology kind of position. And Bart, Carl Bart is the other one. And he's the definitive like theology from above person. Right. And the real kind of smoking gun. It's not really a smoking gun, but the real thing, if you're looking for a way to remember Karl Barth, is you could remember Karl Barth's famous debate with Emil Bruner over natural theology, mm. at which point Karl Barth is vehemently against any form of natural theology. Right. Um, he thinks all of theology should be done from above. Now, and it's interesting that they pick these two dudes because <laughs> these two dudes live...
1: They feel like they live in contrast to each other. Well, they
0: live 700 years apart in different
1: countries. Yes. So it's like
0: not really great conversation partners. But they do both represent well what the point that they're trying to get across. And they end up calling them frenemies, Mm -hmm. which is true. They... They would, not, they would not agree theologically. I don't
1: think so. Um, but something they do have in common is their radicalism, right? Like, which I think is important. In what way? Because, I mean, Aquinas was this, kind of took on this or became a part of this order that's The Dominican. The Dominican order that's really radical, doing new things kind of type deal.
0: Well, so it's not new things. It's new to Thomas. Right. Because he's wealthy. Right. And they want people to take like vows of poverty.
1: No, it was, but Thomas chose to join the Dominicans, a newly formed order of the medicants or beggar preachers.
0: Right. But they're, they're a subcategory of the medicans, which are right. longstanding tradition. The newness element of them is just the vow the, of poverty. Right.
1: Um, and Bart's whole thing about like rejecting liberalism in all forms. Yeah. Right. Just very radical kind of dudes. Mm,
0: yeah. I mean, for Bart, you got to kind of understand living in the early 1900s, um, the rejection of liberalism isn't that radical, mm-hmm. right? We're on the the tail end of modernity. Post-modernity is on the rise. There's lots of things changing.
1: Um, but, but I you do also I have to think get, about like in Germany where he's living, yep. like with the rise of fascism and the Nazism, right? Like,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. There's very fair points. Very fair points. <clears throat> um, they also happen to be. Arguably, the two most um,
1: they, wrote author, <laughs> they wrote a lot They wrote a lot of things uh,
0: from the church. Like they, if you were looking for like top three people who wrote the like published the most crap, mm. um, RC
1: Sproul is number one. <laughs> I
0: actually think Aquinas has not beat.
1: Oh, I was I was kidding. Oh, but yeah, yeah, no, like um,
0: I don't think anybody beats Aquinas.
1: He wrote a lot of. A lot I think they said.
0: Uh they put in here how much he wrote. And it's like 11 million. Um not volumes, but uh I'm probably not going to remember or find it.
1: He wrote a lot of stuff.
0: Wrote a ton of stuff. Um and Carl Bart wasn't really any different. I mean, Carl Bart wrote a ton. Um, as well, so these are two of the most well-written theologians in the church's history, yeah. and they end up having a conversation about doctrine versus doctrines, which I'm personally going to skip over because I think it's a an arbitrary and pointless distinction. Right. Um. Apologies, um, Ben and Randy. I love you guys. Um. I'm just. Not gonna, I'm going to skip that. <laughs> um, and then they venture into conversation about sources of theology. Now, Clayton, you should be able to lead this conversation Definitely because we've can. talked at, at length yep. about yep. everything that they're talking about. Yep. And what are they talking about?
1: So they're talking about the Wesleyan quadrilateral.
0: Yes. It's not exclusive to the Wesleyan tradition anymore.
1: No, it is not, but that is the term that is correct. talked about here. Um, meaning that we talk about, we build theologies in four ways mm-hmm. Scripture, um, how do they do it? Scripture, tradition, uh, reason, and experience. Tho- those are um, the four
0: sources of theology. theology.
1: Now, as they do, and as we believe, Scripture. Carries a little bit more weight. Mm-hmm. Than it's not an else. equilateral. It is not it's an a quadrilateral. It's a quadrilateral.
0: There are four quadrants, mm-hmm. of which they are not equal. Scripture does get more weight. Right. The question of how big that quadrant is is one that is up for debate. And if you've listened to this podcast very long, uh, you will know that I am on the lesser end of that spectrum. I give it much. I give it more credibility than the other three, but not by much. Mm-hmm. The way that I like to say it is 26% of the quadrilateral goes to scripture and the remaining 24.33333% 3, 3, 3, gets Everything in all the is. other categories.
1: <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I feel very comfortable sitting there. We did a whole episode on the quadrilateral I like think we did year.
0: I think we did a whole um, episode or maybe a series.
1: I think it was just one episode on the quad. But I, it maybe. Um I love what they're what they talk about here though. That this idea that scripture is kind of like the most important thing may lead to the idea that it, the Bible is like a cluster of free-floating factoids. Um or what they say here our attention will be on the greater narrative of Scripture through time and space will require that we often only cite Bible references as confirmation for their for our verdicts. Mm-hmm. Um, this practice could leave the wrong impression that the Bible is a cluster of free-floating flat factoids. Yeah. That it is not. It is a narrative. It is a story. It is a story. Um, and that is how you should read it. Yeah. Um,
0: and if... If you put the Bible into the category of a story mm-hmm. um and comfortably in the story, I am comfortable increasing my percentage mm. given over to the Bible. Mm-hmm. The problem is, most of the time you have a conversation about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Most people are approaching the conversation from a different perspective
1: mm.
0: and... If I have to do it according to their perspective, it's only 26%. Um, But when you put it in the category of a story, stories change things. Like story in general changes things. It does. And so now what they don't actually, when they actually get to their diagram, they don't have it as a quadrilateral. They don't. Scripture ends up; it ends up being this like centerpiece, three pointed triangle that Scripture's in the middle of.
1: Yeah, it, it is a centerpiece with
0: yeah. At which point, Scripture becomes a conversation partner with each of them, right? Well, which we'll get there, and we'll talk yeah. about that.
1: But.
0: So the four the four categories are Scripture, which we've talked about, mm. reason, which you should think very like modern enlightenment kind of ideas about reason and thinking and science and all of those things experience. You should think very Mm postmodern everything about what your experience and your personal um, personal encounters with the divine leads to that's, that's experience and tradition. You should think about the church tradition. You should think about, History, you should think about creeds and councils, and you should think about the way that God has moved throughout history.
1: Now, it it, it is not exclusive to this, but whenever I think about tradition, I think about like um, forms of Christianity that do lean more on uh, like heavy liturgical things, um, like more formal liturgy. Um, just because it's easier to put it in like that kind of context. And it's not exclusive to that, but
0: yeah. Tradition exists in every
1: church, in right? every church, in every tradition. It does. Well, even. Yes. But even
0: if you think you go to a church where you're like, we're anti-tradition. No, you're not. I- I'm calling BS. No, you're you're not, not anti-tradition. Every church has a tradition. You're, you're anti a tradition, mm-hmm. but in being anti you a tradition, you've created a tradition. Yeah. Um, we're I remember having the, nomination. the yeah. <laughs> I remember having this conversation with someone. i are like, our church doesn't have any tradition. Wrong. And I was like, that's not true. And they were like, No, it is. I was like, What do you do for Christmas every year? Mm-hmm. Like, where, where's your pulpit have to sit every week? Mm-hmm. Do you ever rearrange the order of your chairs? Mm-hmm. Do you ever change the order of your service more than one? Mm-hmm like, special one-off right. for, like, Easter or some big production. Like, no, we all have tradition. Yeah. And even non-denominational, don't This is not shoot a shot. me, listeners. This is not a shot. If you go to a non-denominational church, by and large, you can look at Barna studies to affirm this. By and large, non-denominational people are just baptists that didn't want to be affiliated with Baptist denominations.
1: I I joke about them being Baptist light.
0: They are yeah. or or they're charismatics who've been kicked
1: out. Yeah, that too. That, that, that those are really
0: the only two that happen. And it's because yeah. the Baptists don't have this kind of charismatic element right. by and large and there's a much more freedom here, but less affirming of women and all those kinds of things. We've, we've kind of found a way to exist um, in spite of those things in Baptist life. Um, And then you have the charismatic traditions, which are less free Mm -hmm. and much more kind of hand on you, monitoring you, Um, They control your credentials, so if you say anything they don't like, they can revoke those if they choose, all those kinds of things. So non-denominationals are really made up of Baptists who don't want to be Baptists or Charismatics who've been kicked out. Right. Um,
1: But all of these things go together and fit together like a puzzle piece. 1,000%. If
0: you think you're only doing theological makeup from Scripture alone—
1: you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You're just wrong. But your that is your primary source is scripture.
0: You would hope so. You, 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 you would think would, so. You, would,
1: you want that to be the case. That is but the goal.
0: My my point that I always argue to people and point out to people is it's actually just not true. Right. Because we all approach scripture right. from a perspective and a worldview, yeah. which therefore means your experience is actually the thing driving it. Because yeah. the way in which you interpret the scriptures dictates Agree. what you make up about the scriptures. And actually a great book on this. Uh, um, Hang on. Give me a minute. Um, It must be over here. Oh, it's down there. Right next to the red book. Nope. Other side. Yep.
1: Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes by Randolph, Randolph Richards. Richards and Brandon O'Brien.
0: Yep. That book, if you've not read it, and there's a new one. Um, I don't think Randy wrote it. I think maybe somebody else wrote it. Um, but it's called Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. Ooh, I've not read it yet. But both of those, like that book specifically showed me that we all approach... Like, if you think you can put Mm -hmm. some objective lenses on where you approach Scripture without a worldview or perspective, you're just wrong. It's not happening. You're coming to the text with something. And that's that's affecting how you're interpreting, reading, appropriating, Mm -hmm. all of those types of things, which really means you may put Scripture at the center, Mm -hmm. but it's your perspective, your reading, your Your understanding of of Scripture, which really makes... Yeah, experience and the, tradition—the main piece—and these other things that are impacting the way you're right. reading scripture. The, I, That's why I don't like their middle thing. I, and
1: yeah, I don't. I don't really like that either. Um, although what they're trying to say, idealistically, I think I'm on board with. Right, like scripture. One thousand percent agree. Scripture needs to be the basis. Yep. Um, now we all approach it the Bible with our own biases. Right? Oh, 1000 influences all these other things. 1000%. Yeah. We Which all is do. Why yeah. there's thousands upon thousands of different forms of Christianity. Well, and I'll tell right. you,
0: it changes Yeah, like the, your biases change. Mm-hmm. I remember used to, when somebody asked me about the Bible, like in some kind of like, what's your qualm with the Bible kind of conversation, um, or like an inerrancy conversation, my go-to, was the Canaanite Conquest. Mm. Um, now, if somebody asks me, my go-to are contradictions in marriage and divorce narratives.
1: Well, yeah, because Why? that's your experience currently. Because
0: my experience currently is I yeah. am going through divorce. By the time this podcast goes out, I will be officially divorced. Mm-hmm. Um because I got cheated on, please don't turn the podcast off because I'm a divorced pastor. I got cheated on. I had no choice. Um, but like your experience will change the way that you approach the scriptures and the yeah. things that stand out to you and pop and like become vibrant for you. And so it like, and I I get in and, and that element, I love that they want the conversation piece right. for the scriptures with these other three elements or sources of theology. I just, I'm not sure that if we were going to use their diagram, mm-hmm. I don't think it should be this.
1: I don't think it should be that rigid.
0: Uh, um, I well, actually, actually, I, I actually think, I forgot, I didn't realize they did this. This is the only way I'm okay with this. Because oh. it's a perpetual,
1: right. Give everything
0: flows in every right. direction.
1: So that I did like, and the, the arrows that are bolded, Pointing from scripture to the other things. But it's still... When you try to put it in a diagram, I think it is still limiting. And no matter what way you want to try to put it out. Well... Because all of those things are going to change. And some lines might be more bolded than others in different points. Well, the only
0: one... Well, in theory... The only one that won't change is tradition.
1: Right. In, th- in theory, yes. Now, your interpretation, your, experience your understanding
0: with... of tradition will change. Right. For instance, this is just me and a part of my own deconstruction journey. Um, one of the things I used to pride myself on about being a Baptist is how we've reached all these people with the gospel. Yeah. I'm now convinced that that's oppressive colonization. And I actually am vehemently against that kind of evangelism tactic. Yeah. Um, I think I don't think that's not what I see when we talk about Christian witness and mission. Um. And so, like, yeah, my experience, my reason, my all of the things happening mm-hmm. has brought me to a place where I'm reinterpreting right. how I once viewed tradition, but tradition didn't change. Mm-hmm. How I viewed tradition changed.
1: Right. Um, ultimately, this is kind of the basis of how we built theology.
0: It's the sources of theological method.
1: We, we need these four things, and however you want to weight them, Scripture does need to be weighed the most. Uh, oh, 1,000%. Scripture has to be weighed the most. But... <clears throat> This is how we build theology, and as as we've talked about before, building theology using these categories within the creeds, you're good. Um, and it, doing it this way also allows a lot of freedom in building theology, as long as you're within the creeds. You know what I mean? I would if, you're, say- if you're solely basing everything off of scripture. Um, which you can't really do, right? But a lot of people think that they do. You know, that, and that's funny to think about. A lot of people think that they build their theology solely based off of scripture, but they don't.
0: They don't. A great example, and we'll, we'll end after this, but a great example is rapture theology. If you ask any Baptist slash fundamentalist person they're going to tell you that rapture theology comes from the Thessalonian correspondence. That's not true at all. Rapture theology originates at a little tent revival in Scotland where a little girl sees a vision. She's like 12. She falls down, slain in the spirit, has this vision of all these people being raptured up to heaven. And who happens to be in the audience and see this, at this little tent revival, other than American preacher Dwight L. Moody? And Dwight L. Moody, being a good Baptist, knowing his Bible, was like, oh, wait, you can make that interpretation based on Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. Comes back to America and starts preaching it. Why is rapture theology only an American belief? Because it started here. <laughs> Because, well, it didn't start here. It started in Scotland. Right. But why didn't it go anywhere in Scotland?
1: Because it wasn't made popular there. Like, the voice wasn't there.
0: It didn't matter. Dwight L. Moody comes back, ties it to Thessalonians, and then everybody says that rapture theology originates from Thessalonians. It's just not true. Yeah. It actually originates from an experience of a little 12-year-old Scottish girl.
1: No. Which, rapture theology, fully orthodox, right like i mean i we talk all the time about how we're not here for it
0: i i don't think it's a helpful theology i don't think However, so either i don't think the creeds rebuke it exactly and right. so i think it's exact. and and this is the same thing i will say like me personally my own yeah. theological makeup and understandings i want to be as inclusive as possible I have like a vehement, like a holy um, indignation against rapture theology because of the way I've been treated mm-hmm. by people who affirmed that. Right. Um, but for in the Cohen, same way. For
1: it's like a secondary issue. Oh, uh,
0: it, it's even tertiary for me, I oh, think. okay. Yeah, it's like so not important because I also have to realize that whether or not something is secondary or tertiary also has to do with the volume of people talking about it. Mm. Rapture theology just does not have the volume that it merits. Right. secondary issue.: I mean, it's literally only an yeah. American belief or those yeah. of whom we've colonized. Mm. That's it. right. So like just know, no matter <laughs> what, as much as you try. Experience is going to dictate most of your theology. And like, I just think we're naive if we think it's not going to.
1: Yeah, and I think I think we have to be careful with this idea. Because remember, I think going back to Aquinas and Bart, right? And we do need to wrap this up. But I, I think we have to be careful with allowing, and this is more Bart's argument, that we, we have to be careful with allowing experience to take over too much because then we create a God that looks like us more than we look like God, right? Like, that's Bart's argument, whereas Aquinas' natural theology is just like, yeah, this is just kind of what is, you know, like.
0: Yeah, my, my argument to Bart would be, well, actually, that's exactly what God did. He tried to look like us.
1: Agreed. He tried in Jesus. He tried to look like humanity. Yeah. But not the individual person with power standing in the pulpit, preaching their own message. Oh, well, you know what I mean? Like, of course not. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to be careful with allowing experience to take over too much. Um, and still have to be, still have to be thinking subjectively about certain things. You mean objectively? Yes. Objectively. Sorry.
0: Uh, Yeah. I would agree with that. I, kind of. I and this I, I'm very much so given over to postmodernism. I'm very aware of that. I'm just not sure. I'm not convinced that objective truth exists in this world. Like in not in this world as in the cosmos, but in this world as in in this category of conversation. I'm not sure that objective truth exists other than the truth of the statement is that there is a Creator God, mm-hmm. I I really think that's the only objective truth that we can say. I think everything else has an element of subjectivity and experience to it, which impacts its objectivity.
1: So, I hear you, but,
0: but I, and I, and I'm just gonna say, I know. If you haven't been following along with all of this, Ben and Randy are my former professors.
1: They would not like They guns. are cringing if yeah. they're hearing.
0: And I know Ben listens to the podcast. They are cringing right now at everything I'm saying.
1: Yeah. I I, I just I want to be careful not to go too far in that category of letting experience take over. Um, Scripture
0: still gets 26%, but... Also, like, the fact that our experience dictates and impacts how we interpret Scripture Mm -hmm. makes it subjective.
1: But the creeds still exist. But they're not objective.
0: They're subjective. They were a room of men who interpreted through their experience and the conversation they had had and the things that God had said to them, Mm -hmm. and they came up with creeds. Mm
1: -hmm. But that's how— That
0: still makes them subjective
1: but that is how we dictate everything else and like how we guide our own theology. Right. Like
0: also we do that according to Jesus of which how many, how many different versions and ways of interpreting Jesus do you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like, like no matter what we've got to stop with this idea that there's a way to be objective.
1: Hear me. I'm not saying that there's only one right way to read Scripture or interpret yeah. Scripture. That's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah, yeah, am yeah. I, I, What I'm arguing is let's not try to make... I What I'm arguing against is eisegesis. Reading you, what you want into the text. Well, that's fine. Right, like, that's, that's what I'm trying to argue here. That's and, fine.
0: I don't disagree with that at all. Um...
1: I I think fundamentally that's what I'm trying to argue. Also, don't try to make God fit your own narrative because he doesn't necessarily. Do you think that God fits Trump's narrative?
0: I don't think so, but I think somebody thinks so.
1: Sure. Somebody does think so. Subjectivity.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and here's the question that I want to ask. Like, for those that accept, like, the Trump evangelical experience of God, and to all of our overseas listeners apologies that we're talking in american terms i don't i don't have another way to talk
1: trump um, trump evangelical, meaning the evangelicals that are fully oh given trust over. me my guy they know <laughs> <laughs> they know the I whole just,
0: world knows about that stuff. I, I just
1: i i want to be clear because i've used that term before and people are like what
0: yeah i think the rest of the world was kind of enamored with the stupidity of all of that yeah um Are they a part of the fellowship?
1: I think so. Like they have to be. I mean,
0: I don't I don't know. I, I, I know mean, that it's not my job to say they're not. Yeah. Um and so because of that, that is quote unquote proof mm. that there's a subjective element to everything in this.
1: Agreed. Like I
0: it's also not pretend that we don't eisegete our own ways. Rapture theology is a great example of that. Right. Literally, the word rapture comes from the Latin word raptura, mm-hmm. which is not a Greek word at all. Actually, it's raptura is a, trans, a Latin translation of the word perusia, mm-hmm. and parousia means something very different than raptura means. Raptura mm-hmm. means to snatch. Mm-hmm. Perusia means coming. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which they were used in culture very differently. That's a form of eisegesis, even though we wouldn't say it's eisegesis because it's predominantly held by people, right. Baptists, fundamentalists, who are against eisegesis. So right. they wouldn't call it that, even though it is. Right. Subjectivity in all things. And that's why we must have, must have unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and in all things, sure. charity.